ahead, if you will, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll look at beginning in verse 12. It's good to see you here tonight, I'm looking around. Some of us have been here all day long, haven't we? We, uh, some of us, of course, we were here this afternoon for a funeral at 2, so it, uh, it has been a long day for many of you who are out there. I'm thankful for you sticking around. You must have thought something was going to happen tonight. And I'm proud you're here with us. Um, I do want to say a couple of things. Uh, this afternoon, uh, we had a couple of interest meetings. Uh, one, I think, to Montana. I think that was this afternoon. And again, if you're interested in that, you ought to, uh, you ought to see Brother Ben and uh, get your name on that list. It's a great opportunity. Uh, I wanted to say this for those of you who have been to Montana. Uh, you went up and you worked with uh, a Pastor Daniel, who, by the way, is the brother-in-law of Jerry Love from Reston, Louisiana. Some of you do know there's always a Louisiana connection. I mean, I, always a Reston connection somehow, it seems like. But uh, Daniel and his wife, Vicki, are uh, celebrating their 25th year at East Haven Baptist Church in Kalispell, Montana tonight. They're having a big celebration. So I wanted to pass that along to those of you who, are, who have been there and you know them. It's a great thing God's doing. Of course, there was a Nicaragua interest meeting, I think, as well. And some of you just got back from Nicaragua. And it was good, right, Leon? I, I'm believing you. I think I am. He, he looks like he's, he's ready to go. But, yeah, they had, a, they had a great time, heard great things about what happened. So we're grateful you all are back. Uh, and we are celebrating what God continues to do in Nicaragua. Philippians chapter 1 must admit that these are some of my favorite passages. If I had not preached three different messages already today, I might be tempted to keep you here at about midnight. So Lord is working all this together, right? Uh, when I met with the committee uh, some three plus years ago now, Dwight, I guess, uh, they asked me the question of which passage was my favorite. And my typical answer is, whatever I'm preaching on or reading at the moment, I'm just kind of that way. I get fired up about the passage that I'm studying. Uh, I get fired up about the scripture that I'm working through at the moment. But I will say in all of the scriptures and all the different ones that I look at, this one in particular really impresses it, itself upon me. In so many ways, this is Romans 8.28 taken in a different way. The way... Paul describes this. He talks about his situation. He talks about the circumstances that he is facing. And basically what he says is, hey, guys, it's turned out great. It's turned out great. Isn't it awesome to know that we have a great God who can move on our behalf even through some of the toughest circumstances we face and somehow it can turn out great, that he can be redemptive in the way he approaches our lives, that he can be redemptive in the way he uses things in our lives. Now, see, this morning we talked a little bit about the will of God, and one of the things that I'm always concerned about is trying to package it in 30 minutes, okay, maybe 40 minutes, of trying to package just a, a, such a large truth in just a short time and somehow missing part of the truth of the scripture to see what 
God would say. And we talked this morning about the perfect will and the permissive will. But again, I say to you, as we look at this tonight, we understand that God can work his will no matter what. That his purpose and his plan can be fulfilled no matter what he sees in the brokenness here of this earth. I want to share this with you. Paul writing again to the Philippians, he's already talked about his blessing that he's received from them. He's already talked about the prayer that he had for them. And then he begins to describe where he is, what's going on, and really how God is using it for his glory. Beginning in verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul writes to them and he says, it's turned out great. Specifically, he says, my imprisonment has turned out great. Now, when you're listening to Paul speak here, he's writing to this early church, you recognize that Paul is captive. Most people describe it as a house arrest in Rome is where I believe he is. And he writes this letter saying, hey, I know where I am. I know what's going on. I, I am in captivity. He writes four books of the New Testament from this captivity, obviously. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The four captivity epistles. He writes to them, which in and of itself is awesome, isn't it? I mean, here he is in captivity, and he's writing the churches to encourage them. I wish I had that kind of redemptive, encouraging disposition about me. I, I'll be honest. E even, if it's ha even if it's a household arrest, I think I'd probably be feeling sorry for myself. Any of you kind of have that same attitude from time to time? I mean, I would have sent out invitations. They would have been addressed to everybody. You come to my pity party. I want to tell you how... I I mean, I've served God and I've, I've been on these different trips and you look in the book of Acts of so all the things that happen and at the end of the book of Acts, he's in Rome. Again, under house arrest. After all of that, if I'd done all of that, I, I think I'd just been sitting around just feeling sorry for myself, thinking maybe this is over with. Maybe, you know, God is through with me. But he is writing to encourage the churches. And what he says is that my captivity, here I am, my imprisonment has actually turned out 
to be good. It's turned out to be great. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know. I think last week I mentioned to you that there are different words in the New Testament that really capture this English word know. This one here means to know by experience. He says, I want you to know by experience through this relationship. I want you to understand. I want you to be able to come in with me and see what God is doing. It's kind of like he's giving a personal personal testimony. You remember those nights? You remember those nights that we you've had in your life, maybe some years ago, when the preacher had a long day and he had preached some sermons and he had been through a funeral and he came and he said either let's sing a little bit or he said let's go ahead and have some testimonies. About came that close tonight. <laughs> let's have some testimonies. And people would stand and they would say, this is what's going on in my life and this is what's happening here. And, and it was always something that would touch you personally. There was always somebody, there was always some word that was spoken that would really hit me. And usually before we went home that night, a lot of people, maybe it was because I came from Birmingham Ridge Baptist Church and North Mississippi and we were just an emotional lot of people. But before we left, just about everybody would be in tears because there was something personal that had touched them. This was out of their own experience. This wasn't something that They had read in some theological book. It was something that they shared of what God had done in their life. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I want you to come in and I want you to hear my testimony. I want you to know that now I've experienced it. And certainly he had before. But now in a new light, he had experienced the sovereignty of God. He had seen how God could take the most difficult situation and he could make good out of it. Paul in captivity and imprisonment. He knew by experience what God could do and how he could redeem this situation. Notice specifically what he says. He says, this has happened to me. These things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Actually, the gospel has advanced. They're they're putting me under arrest. I'm right here. It seems like I can't go anywhere and get out. But God is taking these moments... And he is using them to spread his good news. Something similar when you go back to the book of Acts and you see the stoning of Stephen and what a difficult time in the life of the church as it sees its first martyr. And yet, when you read the book of Acts, the story, it says that after that event, that basically Christians begin, the believers begin to spread out in different areas, sometimes out of fear. They're concerned about being there in Jerusalem because there in Jerusalem, they are on a hit list. They are the targets of the government, of the people. So what they do, they move around. But here's the great thing about it. While the Jewish leadership thinks that it's somehow smothering the Christian movement, what they're doing through persecution is allowing the gospel to go forth. See, this is the way God works and redeems. And Paul says here, the gospel is going forth. And he gives these, he gives these two examples. He says in verse 13, 
so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the praetorium, the Roman guard itself, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So here the guards are making sure that Paul's doing what he's supposed to and he's staying in the spot he's supposed to, all of that. And Paul says, while I'm here in captivity, understand that the guards are hearing the gospel. The Roman praetorium guard, they're hearing the gospel. They know that my chains are in Christ. I love that language. Now, you know Paul uses that in Christ phrase throughout his writing. I mean, it has strong theological implications. But listen to this. He says, my chains, I'm talking about the captivity that I'm in right now, is that those chains are in Christ. In other words, everything that's happening to me is becoming a testimony. Even my imprisonment is becoming an, a testimony of Christ Jesus. And they are hearing the gospel. So he says, it's turned out great in some ways. They're hearing the gospel. And then second, notice what he says. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the guards are hearing about Christ. And the other believers that are here, they're becoming more bold. They're becoming bolder in their witness. They see me, I'm in captivity, I'm talking about the Lord, and they're gaining strength through that. They're getting encouraged. They're sharing without fear. The original language, I mean, is that phobia, that without any type of phobia, without any type of fear. Some of us have a phobia of witnessing sometimes, right? A fear that comes upon us when we talk, especially if we were in a culture that was not like ours. And remember, Rome was anything but Christian. At best, here it is pre-Christian. And it says that all of a sudden, they look at my witness, they look at what's happening, and they're out there, they're sharing in a bold way Christ Jesus. Well, he says my imprisonment has turned out great. And I want to go ahead and show you what he says about the strife that he's really encountered. He says, my strife has turned out great. So I want to show you this, and then I want to come back and make some final comments about this basic truth of God redeeming even the most difficult and bringing good out of it. Look, if you will, in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So what he says is that there are two different groups of people that he sees coming up even in the church's life. And he says that one group, they basically are preaching out of envy and strife. That is their cause. How would you love to be identified with that group? They're the ones who are preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. They're talking about the truth. But really, the cause of their preaching is envy and strife. 
You have the other group that's preaching and teaching. It says they're doing it for the cause of goodwill. So notice the lines, the distinct lines that he is drawing. One group, envy and strife. The other group, goodwill. Then he says that some are doing it out of selfish ambition. The source of their preaching, ambition. The other group, out of love. That's the agape love, by the way. The committed type of love. So one group is doing it for their own ambition. They want to try to move up. The other group is because they are committed to the gospel and they're committed to Christ and they're loving one another. That's the reason they're doing it. Some do it, he says, in the manner, notice their manner in which they do it. He says, some do it not sincerely. They're trying to add affliction to me. And others are doing it because they have been appointed. You couldn't find two more diverse groups. Their motivations, the way they're doing things. You can see here the first denominational split, right? I mean, there is strife. I don't like strife, do you? I can't stand it. Now, there are some people that I am convinced they thrive on strife. They thrive on it in their families. They thrive on it in the church. I've pastored a few of them. But I cannot stand strife. You know, I don't think the church ought to be at strife, at conflict with one another. Paul will write a lot about unity, and we're going to get to that unity here at Philippi. Because there was obviously disunity. There was conflict. If you read this whole letter, you'll see where there are these issues that they're facing. I don't like strife. I don't like conflict. But I will tell you this. As much as I dislike it, and I think as much as God in some way dislikes it, He is not handcuffed by our strife. He's not somehow disabled by our conflicts. God can overcome even our conflict and our strife to advance His gospel. And that's what you see, right? I mean, in this passage, He basically says... That no matter what they're doing, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. It's interesting that he uses all these different terms for preaching. Verse 14, he basically talks about speaking the word or speaking the truth. Verse 15, just that simple word of preaching or sharing. He will talk about presenting the gospel in a forceful way to evangelize. I think it, you will notice in verse 17, the defense of the gospel. The defense. The apologetic part, literally, is what it means. The defense of the gospel. He uses all these terms. Why? Because the big deal in all of this passage is that the gospel is being preached. And that's what he says in verse 18. That no matter what's going on, the gospel is being preached. Now, Paul is not saying that their motivations don't matter. Don't hear that. Some of you come out of here and you say, 
Man, I knew God had called me to cause strife. You know, I knew he was okay with that. I, I knew, you know, that God was all right with an ambitious type of spirit. I, I could just feel it. God, you know, that's not what we're saying. God is not, here Paul is not excusing motivation. Not at all. He's not saying that God excuses our motivations. Notice the greater truth. Paul says, no matter what our motivation, God can take those things and he can use them for his good and his glory. That's the greatest truth, is that God can take all of these, even our weaknesses, even our flaws, and he can use them to advance the gospel. Verse 19, he says, For I know. Actually here, he changes verbs. Here he is, I know as a matter of fact that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He believes he will be released. He believes he will be. But whether he's released or not, he believes God will use it in some way to advance the gospel. Even if he has to give his life here at this moment. I believe that he's released from Rome. He does more ministry. And then he is re-imprisoned at some point. And then you have the pastoral epistles that are written at the time. But he says in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed and with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, whatever happens, I believe I'm going to be free, but whatever happens, Christ is going to be magnified through this. That was his trust. That was his belief. Now let me, as I said, come back and make just some final statements around this bigger truth. Because Paul has put it out there. My imprisonment has turned out great. My strife has turned out great. It's fine. Because God's being magnified. His gospel's going forth. I said this morning that there is a permissive will of God. And I believe there is. I say permissive because nothing escapes the authority of God. He must permit it in our hearts and lives. But again, because of the world we live in, fallen, we have a lot of difficulties. Sin has its consequences upon us as a people. Broken relationships? Hmm. Broken relationships. We have moments where we face sickness, health issues. You say, oh, that's not necessarily people's personal sin. I didn't say that they're sick because of their specific sin. I'm saying to you, we live in a fallen world, a sinful world, and because of that we bear the consequences of sin, which in and of itself is disease and sickness. We have to go through moments like this afternoon where you come to a grieving family and you help them walk through some tough times in their lives. All of that God has permitted. I understand that. I don't think in 
heaven, those things are known or realized because there is a different, there's a different system in paradise itself. One that is removed from sin and transgression and rebellion. But even in the midst of his permissive will, even in the midst of radical fallenness that we see around us every day, our God has the strength. Our God has the reign that is necessary to take very difficult, bad things and bring good out of them. I say to you that this is one of my favorite passages in connection with passages like Romans 8.28 which says that our God can work all things together. That means the great moments, it means the most difficult days. Our God can work all things together according to His own purpose according to His own way, for those who love Him and are called according to that purpose. I believe He can do it. I believe He can work through the most difficult things in our lives and somehow bring glory. I've had people come to me and they say, how in the world could God ever bring good out of this? And there are days that I look and I say, God, I don't, I don't know how you could. I don't know how you could take something that is so wretched and something that is so despicable and somehow bring good out of it. But then I come back to this passage. And I'm reminded of what Paul said. I come to the book of Romans and I hear what Paul said. But then I go back to the cross itself. The cross. Which was meant to be something... Horrible, destructive. It was, it was a sign of death and horror. The cross. And yet, what did our God do? He took the cross that was such a horrific symbol. And he brought good out of it. Oh yeah, he did. He brought us salvation through this event that was supposed to be so tragic, that was supposed to be so difficult, an event that broke a mom's heart, an event that totally frustrated and disappointed disciples, an event where Satan, I believe, and all of his army thought he had finally, finally damaged God himself by killing him, his son. God took that event. And on the third day, He showed that He could redeem. He could bring life. And He could bring forgiveness. I tell you, these are some of my favorite passages because when I look at the brokenness around us, when I look at the things that where we fall short, and some days when I grow very weary with this world, These passages remind me of the hope and the assurance that I have through my God who sits on the throne. 
that he can take anything. I may not understand it. I may not can even mentally try to comprehend it here on this earth. But I know the truth of it, that God can take anything and use it for His good and His glory. It can turn out great. It can turn out good because of the power and the purpose and the glory of our God above. And I pray that message would lodge in your heart. And I pray that it would encourage you as you live in the midst of a corrupt and perverse generation. I pray that you would be reminded of the truth that our God is sovereign and that He will work toward His own ends, toward His glory, and for our good. And may it strengthen you and embolden you to share the good news of Jesus Christ daily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this tremendous passage. Much more, Father, we thank you tonight for your tremendous governance of this world. God, we praise you for sitting on the throne as you do, for having a power that we cannot even comprehend. God, in the midst of this world, it seems to us so difficult to reconcile those tough aspects of life with your sovereign will. But God, when we can't comprehend, we know that you understand fully. God, when we search for answers, we know that you speak truth clearly. And God, tonight in this place, there may be some of my brothers and sisters who are walking through some tough times. God, I pray that you would take the truth of your word implant it in their hearts continue to implant it within mine and remind us that you can truly take all things and work them together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose Father, tonight speak to us. And yes, Lord, help us just stop for a moment and worship you as we recognize your greatness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?